Good afternoon, everyone in the room watching uh, live on Instagram or listening to our podcast. Welcome. I'm Linda Yablonski coming to you live from Miami Beach at the Untitled Art Fair. And this is What Can Art Do? Three public conversations presented by her clique, Artists for a Good Cause. This week, her clique's sale of commissioned artworks by women and non-binary artists will benefit Four Freedoms, a collective for civic action by artists in the United States. This conversation we're calling Whose History? The Narrative of American History often depends on who's telling the story. Just uh, take a look at our flag, please. Here's one example of someone taking this history and what it symbolizes, once an emblem of unity, now a symbol of division. Dred Scott, here to my left, is, he knows from flags. And this is one example. This is a, an artwork that has the American flag laid out on the floor in front of a book on a shelf, on top of which is a photograph. I can't quite make out the photograph. But what strikes me about this image is the way you have the flag on the floor. It looks a little like a prayer rug this way, and I'm sure you didn't intend it, but when I saw the image, that was one thing I thought of, which put another dimension on it. Can you talk a little bit about what's in this work and why you made it? Yeah, well, the work is called What is the Proper Way to Display a U.S. Flag? And it's a work that was made in 1988 that became the center of controversy in 1989. As you described, it has a photo, photo montage at the top, and the photo montage has text that says, what is the proper way to display a U.S. flag? And below that text is an image of South Korean students burning American flags, holding signs that said, Yankee go home, son of a bitch. And below that are, uh, is an image of coffins uh, draped in the American flag coming back from Vietnam in a troop transport. And so this was an installation for audience participation that people could respond to the question of what is the proper way to display a U.S. flag by writing their views into the books. What you described as being a prayer rug, I don't think most people saw it as that. They saw it as either a doormat um, or, or something like that. Some of the people felt very upset by it being used as a, a rug or a doormat. Other people were very happy by that. The thing about this work was it wasn't just my views of the American flag, but it was this installation for audience participation that allowed all sorts of people, including those that had been locked out of the conversation, to talk about what patriotism means, U.S. patriotism, and what the U.S. flag means. And so some people said, look, you should be, you know, they wrote in the books, you should be shot, and what do you, and your family would have to pay for the bullets, but again, what do you expect from a nigger named Dred Scott? And other people said things like, well, the police killed my brother, and then walked over to kick over his body to make sure that the nigger was dead. Thank you, Dred Scott, for the opportunity to stand in this flag. And so those sorts of people were locked out of the, the conversation, particularly people whose family was killed by the police. This was a work made in 1988 and became controversial in 89. And at the time, there wasn't Black Lives Matter. There wasn't a lot of conversations about 
how black people were done by the police and the epidemic of police murder that causes 1,100 people a year to be murdered by the police and far more brutalized and others locked up in other ways. And so this work actually allowed for dissenting views, which actually there are millions and millions of people that think like this, but they don't actually get to be represented the same way presidents or presidential candidates with their flag lapel pins get to be represented. And so all sorts of people participated. There was vigorous participation, including by some people who stood next to the artwork and wrote their opinion, but also by some people, many people who stood on the flag as they wrote their comments. And that became something which it got to the point where the president of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush one, called the work disgraceful, which I thought was a tremendous honor. And I mean, it was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. If the president knows I exist and he doesn't like what I'm doing, then I'm doing a good job. And Congress outlawed the work because it actually demonstrated that even though they have the Army, the Navy, the Air Force and Marines and cops, cops and more cops, ideas can actually matter. Art can matter. And so when ordinary people from the housing projects in Chicago were standing in line for a half hour or 45 minutes to see a conceptual artwork by a contemporary artist, and just so you know, a lot of people in the housing projects, they're not thinking about conceptual art by unknown artists. You know, but when they saw this work and they heard about this, they were like, we want to see this and engage with it, and we want to interact with it so our views can be represented as part of this conversation. And so that was powerful to me as an artist, seeing all sorts of ordinary people having people call in to talk radio shows to talk about what the U.S. flag meant to them. And it wasn't a bunch of praise. I mean, some people praised it. Some people, you know, wished me death. But many people that had contemplative things to talk about how they viewed this flag, which was not the mainstream view. That's amazing. That is a shining example, in fact, of what art can do and that so many people engaged with it pro or con, the whole idea is to get them talking and relating to an artwork very personally. And uh, where was this, by well, the way? The, the controversial show was at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I was an undergraduate student at the time. I was 24 years old. And, you know, the School of the Art Institute is physically attached to the Art Institute of Chicago, so many people, you know, believe, oh, the Art Institute, this great institution is showing this terrible, terrible, horrible anti-patriotic work. And I'm like, well, yeah, the work is anti-patriotic, but it's not actually at the museum. It should be, but it's not. And so hopefully in the future, maybe, but, but this was a, it was a student show. But people, feel, you know, as I said, people waited in line 45 minutes and an hour to see this. And there were demonstrations of 2,500 people mostly white older veterans, not from Vietnam War, but Korean War and World War II, that chanted things like the flag and the artist, hang them both high, evoking images of lynching. But then there were other people who find ways to, to come talk about and have you know these other challenging views expressed. And it was really something that was inspiring for a lot of people to have somebody be able to say the kinds of things that were being said in public that often were banned from public discourse. Well, we're not just talking about patriotism, but also power. And yeah. art, art, the, an image, you know, lots of people can't read, but they can understand an image, and they understand it in their own way, of course. But, you know, it's unmistakable what's going on here, and that's really impressive. However, you have had a flag in an institution, mainly... Uh, 
I'm speaking specifically of the Whitney Museum of American Art, and we have with us today Ujeko Hockley, an assistant curator at the Whitney, who uh, in 2017, was it, uh, co-curated a show at the Whitney called The Incomplete History of Protest Art. And this flag by Dred Scott was part of that show and is in the Whitney's collection. Uh, this is a black and white banner that says, as you just referred to, a man was lynched by police yesterday. Right here it's hanging in front of an art gallery in Chelsea, uh, but it was in that show and it was in, uh, in front of other galleries as well. It's been in front of other galleries. Yeah. It's been in front of just places in the hood in Baltimore. It's been at a range of places that, that want to show it. Well, it certainly happened everywhere. And uh, it is based on a uh, an actual flag that the NAACP hung in front of its headquarters for, let's see, uh, I don't know how many years, from 1920 to 19... 38, and that flag said simply, a man was lynched, uh, and dread added by police, which is what we have experienced again and again, particularly in the last few years, most uh, prominently, well, uh, you could say uh, uh, George Floyd, but, you know, Breonna Taylor was a woman who was subjected to the same injustice. Now, Artists within art spaces are more free to express, let's say, uh, opposite uh, or oppositional ideas within an institution that has a large public audience of many different types of people and ideas or opinions. It's uh, plus you have to deal with the institution and the people who pay for it and. Did you have any? Well, it's in the Whitney's collection, but. Uh, what prompted that show? Um, well, thank you, Dred. Thank you, Linda. I also, I shouldn't say I've never heard you speak so, I mean, I know you have, but I have not heard you speak so extensively on your 1989 experience. And We should hang out. We could talk more. <laughs> I, like, that's a whole talk. A whole, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's crazy that you were 24 years old and an undergraduate and that that was kind of your first public outing in, in, in the world, in the art world, in, in all the worlds. So have you ever reprised that piece again, out of curiosity, before um, we go to the Whitney? It was actually just most recently shown in a museum in uh, Saint-Étienne uh, in France. Okay. Um, and uh, the uh, MAMC+, Plus, the Museum of Art Modern and Contemporary. And it was interesting there. I would love it to be shown in the U.S., so and it has not it been shown in the U.S. again since, since 2005. Oh, since 2005. Okay. okay. It was shown at a, a commercial gallery in 2005, and before that, it was shown at a couple of uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, university galleries, and they yeah. were threatened. And in some cases, it's like curators' tires were slashed. So the reaction um, was still kind of extreme, even yeah. though the world has, in some ways, changed a lot, and other ways, changed yeah. not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah. Um, Let's have it shown at the Whitney. We'll talk. Well, you know, we'll see. <laughs> so this show, An Incomplete History of Protest, um, I started working at the Whitney in 2017, um, April. Um, and this show opened at the end of the summer, I want to say, maybe September of 2017. And so when I started at the Whitney, it was kind of already in 
there was already an idea to do a kind of group curated show, a collection show that was kind of looking at, you know what, maybe actually the topic wasn't even really clear yet. I don't really remember, but I, what I do know is I had come from the Brooklyn Museum and I was about to open a show called We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 85, that looked at, used a lot of archival materials that related to institutional histories of protests. So the Whitney, in New York primarily, the Whitney Metropolitan Museum, MoMA, um, in relation to protests in the 60s and 70s around black power and secondly feminism and the space that black women were kind of not found between those two movements. And so I think when I came to the Whitney, they were like, well, you know, all you, you've done this before. Like, you know, you like the archive, like what you want to see, go see what we got. Um, which of course I was like, true and true. This is a great, this is going to be a great relationship here. So with um, a couple of other curators, Jenny Goldstein, David Breslin, primarily the three of us worked on this show we kind of built this show that had been, you know, the Whitney has a long history of being kind of a site and a lightning rod, if you will, for protests, um, both kind of inter-institutionally inter and intra, you know, both kind of in the broader world and within the art world. Um, and so, and a lot of work in the collection reflects this. You know, it's a collection that's 19, 20th century and 21st century only, um, and it reflects the experience of the times, you know? So we do have a lot of work in the collection that reflects the tumultuousness of those years. And it was, I'm forgetting, like it was, we started in the 1940s, maybe it was 1940 to present or something. I think 47 was, actually. Well, no, because Japanese internment was part of it. Uh, right, that's right. So I think it was 1940 because we have photographs that relate to the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, and we had works that related to kind of the kind of beat generation kind of, post-war generation, especially kind of youth movements leading into the 1960s. We had kind of art world protests um, led by artists like Faith Ringgold. Um, and then we also had conceptual works by artists like Jack Whitten, Sangin Ngudi that were made in that same time period, but had a different aesthetic, but were thinking about these same kind of societal issues. So it was a chronological show um, and a thematic show and Dredd's work was from 2015? It was made in 2015. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. initially, of course, and as you said, there's been many instances to, to put it back out because, you know, yesterday and yesterday and yesterday, ongoingly. So we, you know, and I had, when I was at Brooklyn, I had seen this flag, and I had, I remember I ran into you at Union Square at a protest, <laughs> maybe in 2016. Yeah, 2016, right after Philando Castile yes. and Alton Sterling were killed. After Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed, and Dredd had this flag with him. Like, he was literally using it kind of almost both simultaneously as a banner, as a cape, you know, as a flag. Um, and, and, I mean, I was just very struck by that. And then I saw it. This is actually, here we are in a Four Freedoms context. This was a show curated by Four Freedoms at Jack Shaman Gallery that they put the flag outside. And just a, a, a brief aside, because mm -hmm. I don't want to cut you off, but it was, mm -hmm. the show was already curated, and then the police killings happen and I asked Hank hey could we include oh, yes. this exactly. and Hank said well I got to talk to the gallery and I assumed they would say no and they said how quickly can you get down here so it was an addition in this very fast. yeah yeah and it, I mean so we went and at the gallery we like were figuring out where to put it and they said we should go to these protests and so yeah. it's like so unusual to say okay we're going to have this fine art object that's in a commercial high-end gallery mm -hmm. and we're going to take the art 
to a protest and then we'll bring it back bring it to back. the gallery. Yeah. Yeah. Very rare. And so I think, you know, I had, I knew this, I'd seen it in these two contexts and then I came to the Whitney and I think what I felt along with Jenny and David in doing this show is that we had this kind of strong representation of these thought, these ideas and these movements in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, you know, the, the Gorilla Girls, Marilyn Ladleman Ukulees, um, Howardina Pindell, like all of these kind of iconic artists of kind of the 80s, 70s and 80s. And then we kind of got to the 90s. There were some works that had come into the collection around the kind of multicultural moment, works that were in black male in the 93 biennial. Um, and then in the 21st century, we were like, we need, there was, we needed, there was incredible works by incredible artists, of course, but I think there was this feeling of like the charge of our times and like the charge that we thought was the height and it's only, you know, ratcheted up since then, honestly, but we didn't, there was, it felt like we can't do a show about a history of protest, about kind of the engagement of artists in the world in politics and not have something that talks about very contemporary issues around police violence, around police killings, um, around Black Lives Matter. Um, and, you know, the collection is, it's built by people and it's, money is a part of it and resources and what's available and what's, there's so many things that go into building a collection that are not just like, I like it, I want it, we need it. And, but in this case, we were like, this is a real, like this is a conceptual failing of this show. If we do a show about protests, 1940 to present, and we don't really, and Black Lives Matter is not a part of it, like, what rock are we living under? You know, and it felt really just, like, stupid, frankly. And so yeah. then I was thinking, like, okay, what works are there? Because we do do collection shows, and we do acquire in strategic ways for collection shows, even if, you know, we want to, you know, if you, leave, if you read the credit, as, as you know, you can see the accession date, so you can see if it was... 10 years ago, two years ago, or this year. And I this always case, read the wall labels yeah. for that reason. Yeah, and there's a lot of information there. Yeah. And I think institutions do get a bad rap sometimes for like, oh, they just bought this just for the show. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we did. Just buy this for the show. It doesn't mean we're never going to show it again, but it means like, would you rather it not be here? Like, those are the two choices. We buy it for the show or it's not here. And we you, don't have this conversation about this current moment. So Dred's flag really was this opportunity to really extend into the current moment and to also hearken back to historical, like to really think about, yeah, 1920 to 1938, which is outside the bounds of the exhibition, but obviously the activism of the NAACP informs so much of what happens in kind of black right, black power movement, the Black Panthers, so much um, civil rights activism. So I think we liked also that it really connected to this moment so clearly, but it also connected to a historical moment um, and to an archive, kind of, you know, in a very, it's a living archive, kind of, bringing the NAACP's efforts into the present. Well, you've brought up a couple of issues I wanted to ask you about anyway, and I'll ask both of you this, but uh, one is often with so-called protest art or ma art made uh, for, that addresses a specific issue or event or season loses its potency over time and that issue is resolved or it's gone on, developed into something else and it doesn't uh, have the same impact. Now, I saw that show 
And I've, I'm a child of the 60s, so I was, you know, I grew up with the Vietnam War protests and various civil rights actions. And uh, I was very impressed with how powerful that show was. But the thing is, I didn't, I've been going to the Whitney for decades and I'd never seen almost anything in that show and was really surprised to find out it had been in the collection all this time. So uh, I think it's so great that you did that show. It got a huge reception. I think everyone was affected. Everyone who saw it was affected by it. Uh, but how do you, do you think about that? You know, is this something that you... Now, clearly, you have chosen a flag and police violence, two issues that aren't going away. So they're not getting old, and they need to be restated again and again. And so, you know, this could still be new, even though you made it, you know, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and within an institution like the Whitney, I mean, it, it conserves and displays his, uh, history of art. So it's from a period, but it speaks to now. So how do you keep that spirit of protest? As you say, you know, you didn't even have something except for Dred's flag to represent Black Lives Matter, the, this period. Well, we and, did. And, there are other works that were in the yeah. show. I'm thinking Jatavia Gary had a really, has a really beautiful film that was also in that yes, show. Yes, that's right. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that we felt like there was something about the, like, urgency of the flag that really felt in, in congruence with the urgency of, of the time that we were living in. Um, but I think, I mean... I would love to do a historical show of protest art that felt totally outdated. Yeah. So good point. Like if <laughs> there's like nothing in that show that like Japanese internment. Yeah. Still doesn't get it. It never got it. Well, it, it never got the attention and doesn't still is not taught in schools, but we yeah. still behave in the same ways. Yes. We still do the same things. Maybe not in the extremity of that, but like we're not, Maybe and not always in the United States, but if we think globally, these things are happening all over the world. I mean, if it's, you know, the beat generation kind of 1950s era of like kids kind of dropping out of society, like, yes, that's maybe an extreme version. But I think like we are living amidst deep generational, not division, like we're living in a time of very much generational schism and for good reason, like. They have, Gen Z has all the right to be mad. They should be mad because we have not done what we should have done to safeguard their futures. And so I don't, I think there is a connection there. Maybe it's a different issue. Maybe it was a different kind of sense of frustration with previous generations, but it's the same kind of question of like, what do the, as a younger generation do in, in the face of inaction or conservatism or outright racism, hatred, on down the line, violence of a previous generation. So, yeah, I don't know. I would love to not. I don't want to. Sh I would love yeah. to show this work and be like, what an interesting historical artifact from past time. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, I would love for my work to be, you know, obsolete, and and but it's unfortunately not. And and I think a lot of you know, protests were. I mean, you know, Picasso's Guernica was made right after the bombing of Guernica. 
a fascist bombing of a civilian population. I mean, he made it really quickly. I think it was like two months, and then it was on display, and at a at a fair. And and yet, that's this iconic Picasso work that I just earlier today at the Perez Collection saw somebody reinterpreting that. And so, you know, this well, it's work- it's the great anti-war painting of at least the 20th yeah. century. Yeah, and last uh, I heard, wars have not ended. No. Um, and, you know, if you're making, it's like a lot of the work that was in the incomplete history of protest, the AIDS crisis is kind of ebbed in a certain sense, but that pandemic is still with us. And there's another pandemic, which we're sort of, I don't know if you guys heard, there's this thing called COVID. I mean, it was COVID-19. It, I think there's going to be COVID-22 coming. And, and so, you know, it's these issues, if the, if the work of protest is, Art, th- th- that art is good, then it actually is going to have resonance, even if some of it is historicized. I mean, it's, you know, you, the, some of the work in the, I, I, it might have been the Incomplete History of Protest, it might have been the first Whitney show in the new building, but it had work by Noguchi and, and sh- not Charles White, um, there, were, there were lynching photos. I mean, not photos. They were drawn. Uh, the drawn, uh, Hale Woodruff. Hale Woodruff. Yeah, which, that was you know, the opening like, show. America's you know, hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it's like on the one hand, black people aren't literally strung from trees by and large in the same way we were in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, oddies, 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 1960s. That's true. But police kneel on our necks, and so you know that that work felt very timely, and so I think. The question is not whether political protest work, you know, gets tired or passed by. I mean, the Keenholz work against the Vietnam War, which was in that show, which I think was yes, also in, in his Keenholz yeah. survey that, that happened about 10 years earlier or something. That work is still relevant, unfortunately. And I, yeah, I think that well, Lou's point of I'd like to do a show where this work is historically obsolete, that's what we're yeah. aiming for. And unfortunately same fundamental social relations and class relations that gave rise to these horrors that people were making art about still exist. Well, you, speaking of Keenholz, that uh, environment installation he made in the 60s, the five-car stud, yeah. Yeah. which was one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen anywhere, uh, that was about the burning and flaying of a black man by white... Like, Ku Klux Klan, basically, uh, made by a white artist. Uh, but you brought up a, a very important point I wanted to discuss, which is, you know, it's great to have these artworks that address these issues, but they also, if they exist, if they're internal life, so to speak, if it has to exist as an artwork also, then it carries its meaning further. It communicates more directly. So it's not just a poster somebody ran off, uh, you know, announcing a march. Uh, I mean, that show had an entire wall of Vietnam-era posters announcing all sorts of things. And that that installation of the posters actually became its own artwork. Yeah, but I also think, like, this idea of, like, it has to be art. Like, this is a made-up... We decide what is art, like... There's a thousand different examples right here of art, you know, yeah. some of which could be a poster that somebody just printed off, some of which could be an idea, I an intention. I didn't mean posters. I no, like no. posters. No, no, I'm just saying, though, like, I think these are all, yeah. like, I, the idea of, like, well, it has to be art, what, 
Like, if I say it's art, it's art. I mean, Faith Ringgold's show. I mean, I'm not an artist, so maybe not I, but if the proverbial <laughs> one says, I, as a curator, will take you at face value. Like, that's my job. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's what I do is ex- perhaps explain, share with the public who may not immediately understand why perhaps the work that Dredd made in 1989 is right. art or belongs in an art museum. That's our job. Well, is that's to what I mean. It. The public has to, un- if they understand it as art they may read it a little more closely and also as uh, an aesthetic you know it has an aesthetic and it has ideas behind it it has a particular composition it's uh, not just a statement or a visual statement or otherwise uh, so it, this has been really interesting to hear about all these responses and I should mention that what Dread was the flag. He was also part of a flag burning ceremony as a 24 year old. Uh, uh, well, not a ceremony, yeah. it was a protest. A protest. They, they, they had literally outlawed my work and were yeah. making it so that there was only one permissible view of the American flag. You could not burn right. or trample the flag, which it was a fascist law that was being right. passed. And so we defied that law on the steps of the Capitol. Was, that was political protest. And what happened the, was it, it went, went to the, to the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. So, have you written your memoir, Dred? This is crazy. <laughs> like, 24 years old, your artwork instigated a Supreme Court case. Yeah, and that's why I need smart curators and writers to help I, historicize I, yeah, it. Yeah, I think you should, we yeah. could, you should also, I think, yeah, well, you can write a memoir. I can yeah. tell it would be well, good. Well, but let's not complete the sentence. That Supreme Court passed, I mean, now... Uh, it's become a a tenet of free speech that you can burn the flag or stand on it or wear it as a t-shirt. And before that, you know, you were subject to arrest. That's true. But ironically, people still get arrested for burning flags at political protests for having an open flame. They just don't get charged with flag, flag desecration statutes and they win in court, but it's, you know, the, the people, are, you know, the government still tries to suppress protests much the way they do in Iran or they do in Russia or they do in China. But anytime art gets the attention of Congress, it's pretty spectacular. And it happened, you know, in the, uh, in the when was it? In the 90s, I guess, with uh, David Warnerovich and... Uh, uh, Karen Finley and yeah, Andre yeah, Serrano yeah. and Robert Mapplethorpe. Yeah, that's amazing because, it, you know, then it enters the public conversation, not just the art world conversation, and becomes part of our lives. So uh, we are talking about power now, and the uh, art does have a power that goes beyond the existence of the object itself as a, uh, a collectible for private ownership or uh, institutions, which can, you know, you can't show everything all the time. But these are things that we need to keep in the front of our minds all the time. And, you know, we have newspapers to do that, but there's no way to respond to a news report except, you know, by, well, now we have, unfortunately. Musky Twitter. Yes. For now we have Twitter. (laughs) Don't tell anybody that art has power because we're at an art fair. They're just supposed <laughs> yeah. to be objects yeah. that you collect I and know. hang on a wall. But it has power that isn't always used in this way, you know, kind of socially conscious way, except to express, you know, an opposition 
uh, right now, you know, the way women are being treated in Iran, which is something that Four Freedoms is addressing the at this moment. The plane we're hearing. Yes, that's right. They're, but, and, you know, a few weeks ago, I was talking to Sharin Nishat, who's one of the artists who's been a part of this, was lamenting the lack of response in the New York art world to uh, this. And it's kind of snowballed since then and become much larger. And, uh, but uh, for freedoms, you know, the artists who are part of the collective has made art addressing this issue. It's new, it hasn't been seen by that many people yet. I don't know what the response is. I hope it keeps getting bigger. Will any of that be, become part of, say, the Whitney's collection? Would the Whitney be interested in it as art, as well as a reflection of this moment? Any mm -hmm. of the, like, the artworks that are being made on? for this protest? Uh, you know, I mean, I think, like, sure, yes, anything is possible. I don't mean, like, are there currently plans? No, but I also think public art can exist in this funny way where it's both like <clears throat> extra institutional and, you know, sometimes can be, I mean, I know Dredd has made photographs of protests, for example, and they have entered institutional collections. Um, but, you know, I think there's a certain, that work is meant to exist in a public space and was made in a site specific yeah. way for a particular space. And so, can work that's on that topic or work that's similar or work that was kind of rethought to be kind of for an institutional context be acquired? Certainly. Well, there's uh, other effects that art can have that sometimes surprise us. And I'm speaking about the biennial in 2019 at the Whitney that you co-curated, <laughs> which interestingly enough, there was an artwork that exposed um, how one of the trustees at that time, Warren Kander, made his money that he used a bit to whitewash his reputation the way a lot of collectors do. Uh, the art world used to, it seems to me, look the other way when it came to thinking about where the, with the, how clean or dirty the money was, because you know, there's that famous line in the Godard movie, Contempt, when I hear the word culture, I take out my checkbook. It costs money to make and display art. Uh, and, and not just, I'm not talking about market value, but just to get it made and out there. Uh, and uh, one of the artworks exposed his uh, connection to making weapons, tear gas canisters in particular, that were thrown at protesters. Uh, and, and he also made, you know, ammunition. So this raised a great hue and cry, and eventually he didn't want to, he was under pressure, he resigned from the board. But that created a whole new discussion among all museums in the United States about uh, the, all boards looking at where and how they spend their money. So I'd like to hear if you're willing to say what it was like on the inside of that, uh, not the board, but the yeah. curatorial staff. Yeah, I uh, mean, the work that you're talking about was by um, a collective called Forensic Architecture, um, and they actually 
You know, this, the biennial opened in, in uh, May of 2019, but this had all started, I mean, in some ways it was, had a very long history, but the very particular kind of urgent attention to um, Safari Land, which was Candor's company, started in the fall um, of that, of 2018. Um, so we were, we were kind of having this conversation and dealing with it internally, Jane Panetta and I, my co-curator from, from then. So well before the biennial opened. Um, and, you know, I think it was, it was really hard. It was definitely like one of the hardest things that I have dealt with in my professional life. It was, it was probably the hardest thing I've dealt with in my professional life. And one, one of the hardest things I've dealt with in my personal life. Because a biennial, like, if you, it was our life. We spent two years working on a biennial. We spent all our time together. We were flying all over the country. Like, we literally were, like, saw each other more than we saw our parents, friends, partners, children, in Jane's case. She had, her daughter, Lily, was, like, eight mm-hmm. while we were working on the biennial. So it felt very personal to us. Not that we were, it felt very personal to us how we were going to hold the biennial together. Like, the board is going to do what the board is going to do. Warren's going to do what Warren's going to do. People are going to do what people are going to do. But what we have is the show. We have these 65 artists that we've invited that we have basically said, like, we believe in you. We think you're really lovely, brilliant, interesting, of-the-moment artist. We want to see what you're going to do. We've made this invitation to you, and we're going to stand with you. And we're also going to share as much as we can what we know, because it's not like we were in the board meetings, like Jane, we didn't, you know, we didn't know exactly what was happening, but we, what we knew was more than probably what, certainly what more than the public knew, which is more than what the artists knew, except unless we would share, we shared with them. So I think we, we tried to be as transparent as we could with the knowledge that we had. Um, We like gave our, we spoke to all the artists, we gave them the opportunity to to remove themselves from the show if they wished, the opportunity to change the work that they wanted to make, um, depending on this information that they now had. And people made different decisions from that, you know. Um, some, some artists did withdraw from the show. Well, some artists did withdraw from yeah. the show, but their work was never taken down um, because he chose to resign. I see. Um, and so the work never came out of the show. Um, and, you know, we had a whole conversations about, okay, so what do we do? Like, the show is up. Like, it was August, which is, like, art world summer, like, break. You know, like, okay, the art handlers are on vacation. Should they be called back in to deinstall this work because the artist pulled out of the show because a trustee is this person? And so I think it, there's so many variables. Because to me, it's like, that's not really fair to these art handlers, like that their personal life, that their personal time off, there's no other way for the work to come off the wall. Like I can't take it down. The artists aren't taking it down. The board's not taking it down. And so there was a lot of stuff like that, that I think I would never have thought, you would never have thought to consider would be impacted. And yeah, we didn't have to do that. We were like, we could shroud it. Like, and there's a whole history of work being shrouded in protests. So we're like, okay, we could do that. You know, we, we were like trying to figure out what to do. Well, do you think it overwhelmed the other art in the show? No, I mean, I think, like, if you believe, as I do, and as I think every artist in that show did, and I think every artist, that art, every artist in the world, that art has value, that it can 
push conversations forward, that it can change the world, that it can ch- because it can change people's minds, which is how we change the world. And that is whether we're talking about aesthetics, politics, history, color theory, whatever your work is about, if you are changing people's minds, you are changing the world, potentially. So I yes. think, like, if you ever had a... Qu- if I ever had the question in my heart about, like, is this valuable work that we do, like, in all the ways that it's complicated and complex and enmeshed and compromised, that was the answer for me. Would I ever want to go through that again? Absolutely never. Never, 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 never. <laughs> if I could go back and not go through that, would I say that? Yes. I would be like, yeah. it's cool. We don't need to do that. But that's what happened. And so I think it was this really proof positive that art really matters in the world, that what artists do, that what institutions do, that what curators do, that what educators do really, really matters. Thank you for saying that. I totally agree. Uh, We're running out of time, so I just want to go back to Dread for a minute in this artwork. Last year we had at art fairs and elsewhere, a a craze uh, that I think was partly a consequence of the lockdown of the COVID uh, pandemic and people not having enough to do except play with their screens. But anyway, we had this NFT thing and Dredd came up with this brilliant idea. This was an NFT that was auctioned at uh, Christie's uh, last last October, uh, yeah, a year ago, uh, white man for sale. Where you really inverted the entire history of slavery and turned it around to what uh, was responsible. But in a way, because it's an NFT, even though it exists, not, but not in physical form, it's a little ephemeral. Well, white men don't exist. <laughs> They're ephemeral. I think we can end on that note, unless anybody has a question that who's present for either of our panelists. Yes, can you say it loud because it's hard to hear you? Yes. It was so. It's the actual title is "White Male for Sale." It was. Oh, it was made three weeks after Beeple, so that three weeks after I heard the term uh, NFT, I said, okay, I have to respond to that. And, and just really very briefly, Beeple's work is sexist, it's racist, it's boring as hell. Nobody wants to look at that shit. It's, I mean, it, it just, if you see what's in there, you're not like, oh, I want this on my wall, or there's a museum show, let's put some of that work in the museum show. The only interest is it's sold for $69 million. And so... Nobody talks about the term fungible anymore. Most of you probably know what it means, but it's an old word that just means functionally equivalent. So the dollar in my pocket's the same as the dollar in your pocket to anybody who accepts dollars. But it, for people that were scholars or read about or talk about slavery, they were talking about making people fungible um, because that's the problem that the Portuguese and the Spanish had in the, the you know, late 1400s, early 1500s. And so I wanted to look at the history of capitalism and the history of slavery and, and sort of look at what is fungibility and what is this term that a bunch of tech bros are all excited about. And one of the things is capitalism constantly reinvents itself, but it's all about speculation and it's all about turning everything into a commodity 
for profit and exchangeability. So I said, let's look at this whole NFT thing, which a dude can get up and sell racist, sexist images for a ton of money that nobody wants to look at. So I said, I'll do white mail for sale. And it was ready three weeks after Beeple's thing. Christie's was like a little nervous. They're like, no, nah, no, nah, you know, Dredd's not some blue chippy artist and he doesn't have a big venture capitalist behind him like Beeple. So let's not do it in the, the spring auction. We'll do it in the fall auction. And so it took until October to sell. But in October 1st, uh, 2021, uh, a Christie's auctioneer got up and said, I have a white mail for sale. I can begin accepting bids at $25,000. And that completed the NFT. The NFT was both a loop video, but also the auction itself. So as a conceptual artist, I don't have to limit myself to, oh, an NFT is just a JPEG or something. It's like, no, it can be the sale of a white dude. Um, so. Who is that man? It's a white guy. <laughs> in a black neighborhood somewhere in the United oh, yes. States, in a city. Uh, uh, any white dude will do. <laughs> Thank you both. Dred Scott, Rue Hockley, thank you to our presenter, her clique, and the Untitled Art Fair. Thank you all for being here and for listening. This has been an extremely illuminating and uh, compelling conversation. I hope lots of people hear it. You're both extremely articulate, articulate and the right people to speak to these issues. I'm really happy you were able to join us today. And thanks, everyone. Have a great afternoon. Go out and make thank noise. You.